Oh, the odds were wrong again. Suck it, math. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is February 4th, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hi, Sarah. How's it going? Uh, it's good. How are you? Um, glad I'm covering sports today and not politics. <laughs> yeah, it, it would be um, true you know, every this, day. <laughs> this is this is why we stick to sports, right? Yep. Is um, you know it was a great juxtaposition. Super Bowl Sunday, we expected a result, we got one. Yep, and the Chiefs are champions. We That's... don't we don't have to wait around for the next day for them to count how many touchdowns <laughs> Patrick Mahomes threw for. We did it on the line from Los Angeles is five thirty eight contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Hi, Neil, too. I should say hi to Neil, too. How is that a Minnesota Wild hat you're wearing? It is Minnesota Wild. Uh, so this is part of a convoluted uh, gear swap uh, that Sarah and I had where um, I had a 538 hat and Sarah thought that my dad would like that. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, I, he can have it. And Sarah was good enough to uh, provide me with a compensatory draft pick of a hat, yep. uh, which I picked the Minnesota Wild because they got a great logo. It's a fantastic logo. I, I had meant to buy a uh, a 538 hat for my dad over Christmas, and I didn't. And now the hats are gone from the store, but the t-shirts and sweatshirts are still there. So if you want what a, a 538 wow. t-shirt what or sweatshirt, go to the 538 store. Plug. <laughs> I'm, unbelievable. A, I'm a company woman. <laughs> <laughs> so we had the Super Bowl over the weekend, which we will, of course, uh, talk about. But we also had the Australian Open. And I love tennis, so I'm going to talk about it. And I don't care what anyone else says. Uh, tennis Why? is fun. And wait, everyone wait, should love it. Who doesn't, who doesn't love yeah. tennis? I mean, uh-huh. we were all focused on the Australian Open this weekend. Jeff Quick, who was the runner-up in the men's <laughs> final in the Australian um, Open? The, the, uh, Dominic Theme. Femme? Theme? Team, team, team. Not That's you know what? Impressive. Yeah, I'm gonna give you that because I don't think you could would say his name right, even if you did know who he was, which you definitely do not. No, <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. I know who he, I know who he is. Come on, I am very familiar with him. Um, I I couldn't point him out of a lineup, but I've seen his name a lot on like lost in the semifinals, lost in the quarterfinals to one of the three people who win tennis tournaments on the men's side for the last 35 years. Of course, you saw you also saw him featured on 538.com in the story that we wrote about him at the beginning of, of the Australian Open. Of course, who can forget? Can I go on a rant? Can I just give a quick rant about the Australian Open? I hate like, you know, beating the dead horse on this, but why do they play it now? Why? It doesn't make sense to me. They're like Let's do it way, way before the other majors, three months before, in the middle of the Australian summer when it's impossibly hot, and it'll culminate on Super Bowl Sunday weekend. But that sounds like a good plan, right, guys? It doesn't always end on the Super Bowl. It nor- it's a, it was a little later this year than normal. Wouldn't it make a little more sense to have it like within a month of the French Open? It's more this long gap between Australia and the French Open. I mean, you see that in other sports, like maybe the Masters is way before the U.S. Open. I guess now the PGA is before. But it's the Masters. It's the main event. Australian Open's like the not the marquee event in the Grand Slams. We all know that. So 
It's the start of it the season. It doesn't feel like they're doing a lot of favors. Fine. Fine. I understand they have a season. They have a clay season. At hard season. It feels like you could push it up a little bit. Even like when Indian Wells is. I feel like noted tennis hater Jeff Foster is not going to be setting the schedule for tennis, tennis tournaments. So well, I was going to say, Jeff, imagine how mad you would be in 1977 when there were two Australian Opens in the same year, one in January and one in December. So it doesn't fix any of your complaints about timing, but it adds two Australian Opens. In any so case, in any case, Novak Djokovic beat uh, Dominic Team, your favorite uh, tennis player, Jeff, in a five-set match to claim his eighth Australian Open title. Team came very, very close to breaking the major streak of the big three, but couldn't quite break through. What's that streak at now? Uh, Thirteen Jeez, matches. I thought we were done with this. They had had an eighteen match streak earlier, I know. and then and also an eleven match streak. They're really good. I'm done with that. You're done with them. On the women's side, I'm happy though because we did see uh, 21 year old American Sophia Kennan just be like. Uh, uh, amazing like to watch her the way she plays she goes into this like rage state and when she wins she slams down you know spikes the 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 ball like she's gronk when she loses she spikes the ball like and you would think normally when someone got worked up to that point especially when they haven't won uh, a grand slam before and they're losing, you would think, oh, my God, she's totally losing focus. Uh, this is it for her, especially playing against Muguruza, who is like, you know, uh, one of the best players of, you know, this era. And no, all she did when she went into a rage state was hit a sequence of incredibly precise, amazing winners and uh, broke Muguruza's serve multiple times. So, you know, I, I just found that to be incredible. Playing angry was really like the key to her success, apparently. Yeah, I really like that her rage focused her, and I feel yeah. like I'm going to try to use that in my life. In your podcasting? In my podcasting, You're yes. So my mad rage, right now. My rage will make me podcast even stronger. No, Kennan is a really fun player. Um, she and Coco Goff, I think, are right. just really, they're very exciting for the future of women's tennis. Like, I, I think Serena's not done by any means, and I, I still think she's going to get her 24th title. But it's it's fun to see where the next generation they're coming up and are gonna and are gonna really go. We did not see that with the men when Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi were done. The American men sort of petered out and really didn't do very much. And and then the big three on the men's side have really done it from there. But the American women, I think, are going to keep going and will get, are going to give us some really fun, exciting matches in the future in future tennis tournaments, which we will all watch and enjoy and love for what they are and not hate them for happening on Super Bowl weekend. Right, Jeff? Yeah, I mean, Super Bowl weekend in the heat on the other side of the planet. Other than that, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> on today's show, we'll look back at the Super Bowl and Kansas City's huge comeback. We'll respond to the Mookie Betts trade rumors, looking at why any team would want to trade its marquee player. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. 
On Sunday night, the Kansas City Chiefs squared off against the San Francisco 49ers in Super Bowl 54 in Miami. Along with giving us perhaps the greatest halftime performance since Beyonce's 2013 throwdown of greatness, with honorable mention for Beyonce's 2016 supporting halftime show role, the game was pretty exciting. With only eight minutes left in the fourth quarter, Mahomes and the Chiefs found themselves down 10 points, and ESPN's win probability model gave the 49ers a 95% chance of winning the game. So was this a testament to Kansas City's greatness, or did San Francisco choke? Molly Quirum on ESPN's First Take asked Stephen A. Smith for his thoughts on that question. Stephen A., did the Chiefs win it or the 49ers blow it? Oh, the 49ers blew this game. Make no mistake about it. Jeff, do you agree with Stephen A. that the 49ers blew it? Well, I mean, yeah, they blew it. Whenever you have a two-score lead in the fourth quarter, you blew the game. But I, I think feel like... You know, why can't it be both things? You know, why can't it be a testament to Kansas City's greatness and a little bit of a choke by the the 49ers? Uh, Frankly, there was a certain point where I looked at the screen and I saw that the Chiefs had 10 points. And I think, you know, anyone who's watched the Chiefs the last couple of years knows that they're going to score more than 10 points. I mean, obviously, the (laughs) Niners defense was playing great all game, but they're going to score more points. That is inevitable. I mean, I think holding them to under, you know, 24, 27 points would be a feat. And that's ultimately what they did. But that offense has so much firepower, so much speed, they can do things so quickly that it was going to happen. It just so happened at the end of the fourth quarter. I, I don't fault the Niners so much because I think what they did up until that point was admirable. I actually fault them more on the other side for not trying to put up more points to be right. almost complacent in that lead, thinking that they're going to hold this team to 10 points or 14, 17 points, whatever. I think anyone who's watched even this playoffs knows that they're capable of putting a lot of points on the board very quickly, which is exactly what they did. So what is the difference then between a team choking and just facing a great comeback? Is there a difference or is like choking always a part of that? I think a classic choke has a lot of like stepping on rakes, unforced errors, just doing things that are Dumb. I would say that the Texans in a lot of ways choked, you know, especially in f- turning the ball over on kick returns and that kind of thing. There wasn't a ton of that by the Niners, just it was more a case of what had been working all game stopped working. I do think, you know, if you're going to point fingers, you could look at that. You know, I think the end of the first half was was really like hard to understand. I mean, even, you know, John Lynch is up there calling for timeout like, why not stop the clock and try to put up more points? I mean, you're playing Patrick Mahomes. And the fact that they kind of just, you know, were content to go into halftime because they were getting the ball back, I thought, you know, that was worthy of criticism. I think, you know, kicking a field goal on what what was it, fourth and two, that was worthy of criticism. I mean, field goals are not obviously not going to cut it against this team. It, it will cut it against most teams when you have that defense, but not against the Chiefs. So I do think there was some reason to be critical of, of the decision-making on San Francisco's part. To your point, Jeff, about there weren't any glaring mistakes in the sense of like big turnovers or you know awful uh, decisions. It was like some marginal things that maybe Kyle Shanahan should have done differently to pad that lead. But normally I think when you, when you think of a choke, you think of basically gift wrapping the game away. And I think that in concert with the fact that we've seen the Chiefs mount these huge 
comebacks uh, in all of their playoff games, I think they trailed by double digits, speaks more to the fact that it was an amazing comeback more than a choke. You know, and it's kind of a silly semantic distinction uh, that that we love to make as talking heads. But I I do think that uh, when you think of a choke, you think of a team sort of deliberately giving the game away. And the Niners didn't really give this game away. It was almost a testament to how great they executed their game plan up to that point in the fourth quarter when things started to kind of turn against them, uh, that just when sort of everything that they had done well sort of stopped working, the the dam broke and, you know, Mahomes, uh, the tsunami of the Chiefs, uh, you know, scoring attack sort of rushed through. That is different to me than than a classic choke of just like giving a game away. Jeff, you made a really good point about not going for it, not going for more points when they when things were working is probably the biggest mistake they made. Right. And it's telling that. So the Niners kicked a field goal on fourth and short. Kansas City had fourth down twice and went for it and and made it both times. And that, you know, you could point to that as being kind of the difference in that game. Now, that's not to say that Kansas City still wouldn't have, you know, come back and overcome it in the end. But there were you you would have much rather been the Niners with a touchdown in that case than the Niners with the field goal in that case. Obviously, always you'd rather have a touchdown than a field goal. But given the the what they were facing, it's it's surprising to me that they didn't go for it there. I agree that that's like the place where you could kind of pinpoint like they chose to not kill the chiefs. And then, you know, it's like in those action movies where, you know, they never quite kill the hero, whether it's Bruce Willis or whoever. And, and then they're surprised in the end when they um, sort of come back and thwart the villains plans. I'm not saying the 49ers are the villains. I do very much want to see um, a meme of Pat Mahomes as Bruce Willis and Die Hard. And I want the internet to make that happen for me. That would be great. So Kyle Shanahan is Hans Gruber. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Or maybe Jimmy Garoppolo. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, so let's like take another step back. How did the Chiefs fall so, so far behind Jeff? Like what we weren't really expecting that, right? How did, how did that happen? They have a great defense and their scheme was really working for most of the game. They were taking away basically all of Mahomes' options deep of the field, all those like crossing routes he throws to uh, Hill and Kelsey, and he was essentially giving him everything underneath. And there was just like an inordinate amount of like passes to the sideline that sailed over the head of like the Damian Williams or whatever, like, you know, check down option that Mahomes had. And he wasn't really able to run the ball, and they, they sort of just bottled him up um, and playing to their strengths and were applying pressure, which is what they do best. So everything was really working. It was a great scheme, but it was just a matter of, like, it's four quarters. It's not going to work all game. They're going to make adjustments. Mahomes is good enough that he will himself make adjustments, and eventually the dam's going to break, and that's exactly what happened. Yeah, and I think as that was happening, as um, the, the Niners' defensive plans were sort of falling apart. The The real disappointment was the fact that this team, which had, we had talked about them as being kind of a run-based team, they didn't put too much on Garoppolo's shoulders. And it seems like as a team that ran the ball so well uh, to close out games, you would do that yeah. when you had a 10-point uh, fourth-quarter lead. And I think one of the big disappointments for them was they 
did sort of go three and out and and have these like short possessions at the worst possible time and they stopped running the ball this i found this stat which came from espn stats and info to be mind-boggling okay so we all remember Kyle Shanahan, offensive coordinator of the Falcons in that Super Bowl that they blew against the Patriots. So with a second half lead in that game, they uh, ran the ball on 39% of their offensive plays and passed it on 61% of them. And that was the big critique of how they allowed the Patriots to come back into that game when they led 28 to three. On Sunday, the 49ers ran the ball with a second half lead only 36% of the time and they they passed 64% of the time so they actually passed more as a percentage of their offensive plays with a second half lead on Sunday than Kyle Shanahan's team did uh, when they were blowing the biggest Super Bowl lead they they only blew the second biggest fourth quarter Super Bowl lead uh, on Sunday and also that is when specifically when you want to to hand the ball off is when you're leading by double digits in the fourth quarter like so I think it's a little bit of like getting too cute with with play calling. It sort of sounds like conflicting takes to say that, you know, San Francisco should have gone for the kill and put up more points, but they also should have run the ball more. And I totally agree. But if you in this case, yes, that's what they do best. And you look what they did against the Packers where Mostert's just running for seven yards a carry. And they're like, OK, and we're just going to basically run the Packers off the field every time we get the ball and he was still getting like four or five yards of carry and they would often get in second and short and then you're right they would pass and and things would go wrong and they would next thing you know they're giving the ball back to the the one team you really don't want to give the ball back to but I was sort of shocked they weren't running the ball and, and eating more clock especially in those last couple series so right after the Mahomes interception and the Niners had the ball they had a short run and then a play action pass that went for a first down. And at at that point in our live blog on Sunday night, we were discussing whether that pass was a good idea because it was surprising. We had just been like, okay, now they're just going to run the rest of the game. And Troy Aikman said that too. Everyone was kind of thinking like, well, this is exactly the situation that this team is, is, was waiting for to be able to run the ball. Right. And, and, but so Garoppolo had a, a play action pass after a run. So there, those two things worked in concert and they got the first down. So then the next series, they went a one yard run, then an incomplete pass, then that false start penalty that put them in third and 14. And then that play was just a disaster. And, um, Garoppolo kind of scrambled and they didn't get anything and they had to punt. So they did run on first down, which is what we would have expected them to do there, but it, it didn't work. And then they, I think, felt like they had to pass or something. So there, it was like, that's sort of the problem when you're relying on the run there. It has to work. And if the defense knows it's coming and can stop it, then what do you do? Do you pass because you are panicky and you think you need to get the first down? And I, I mean, we should also say, a few things. So Garoppolo, so he went 17 for 20 for 183 yards in the first three quarters of the game. He went three for 11 for 36 yards in the fourth quarter. Also, uh, the Chiefs were able to get a lot more pressure on Garoppolo in the fourth quarter. On eight of his 13 dropbacks, they got pressure on him. They had only done uh, gotten pressure on three of his previous 20 dropbacks uh, over the first three quarters in that game. So it was definitely a case where the Chiefs defense dialed it up. Sure, which uh, is to be expected. They yeah, were behind. They, they needed, needed to do it. that. Yeah, And I think in the, in the fourth quarter, 
you know, once after the Chiefs came back and then they were needing Garoppolo to make these like was, hero passes. That was a terrible place for them to be in. Yeah, they were never that was never gonna go great for them. Although Garoppolo did have the chance to be the hero, as we wondered last week whether he would be. So we found out. We got the answer to our question from last week. He connects on that one pass, I guess I think it was to Sanders on third down, third and ten. I mean, we're talking about something else. I mean, and that he was wide open. He overthrew him by three or four feet. Um, that was really everything right. at that moment for Garoppolo. Yeah, and it, and it reminds us too that you know it's a game of a game of inches or yards, I guess. Lots of little things can can add up to you know give you the hero comeback win or leave you just short. I wanted to talk really quick too about that win probability in the fourth quarter because that was. Um, uh, an issue for some people. People seemed fond of that on Twitter I, on Sunday night. I feel like yet again, um, some we need to explain probability um, to maybe maybe to Twitter more so than our podcast listeners. But so at that point, with about eight minutes or so left in the game, the ESPN's win probability model gave the Niners a 95% chance to win the game. So what does that mean at that point in the game, Neil? Well, at the most basic level, that just means that when a team is up by 10 with eight minutes left in a game, they tend to win 95% of the time. And you can add bells and whistles to it, which I think is also an aspect of what ESPN did. I think they revamped their win probability model. Um, I think, ironically, after that Falcons uh, uh-huh. Super Bowl, where they had the yeah. Falcons at like 99.7 or whatever it was. And Donald Trump Jr. was like tweeting about it. You know, it was a nightmare. You never want Donald Trump Jr. tweeting about really anything, frankly. <laughs> uh, but in this case, yeah, they they revamped it because they were like, look, maybe we're overconfident uh, in a team's chance of winning. Maybe uh, you can't really extrapolate from the average team in the average game to a situation like the Super Bowl where you have, you know, a strong offense uh, going up against maybe a team that wasn't as good defensively. So they overhauled it and i think they added things like taking into account the the quality of the quarterback and the quality of the defense and things like that and so that's where they got that that probability from people still you know had a problem with well, it well i think people want to think 95% chance to win means they're definitely going to win well sure which is most of the time they are they 95 are. times out of 100 the team is is that's up at that and we, point it's going to win. We don't even make a note in our brain about the 95 times out of 100 that you've seen that situation and then the team that was up ended up going on to win. It's just a footnote. It's a it, you know, it's a it's a number that yeah, we only, passes through right. the win probability chart without even being noticed. We, we only, only notice the 5. The 5. Yeah, we remember right. the comebacks. What I think that our listeners probably understand, but I want everyone to understand is that this doesn't mean that the Chiefs were definitely going to lose. It means that the Chiefs' comeback was amazing. And that's right. like, that's something to be celebrated. It's not something to say, oh, the odds were wrong again. Suck it, math. Like, that's not right. <laughs> that's not how you should think about it at all. You should think about it that Pat Mahomes and the whole team did this amazing thing that was unexpected at that point. And that makes it even cooler. I do wonder if these win probability models are less reliable in a game like this because now look the fact of the matter is this has now happened twice in four super bowls where a team had 95 plus win percentage and the other team came back this is based on historical 
time, down and distance situations. So that's factoring in all these games against Colt McCoy and Mark Sanchez and Steve Berline and every quarterback you know who's not capable. I don't know why I threw out Steve. Steve Berline is an interesting um, uh, uh, pick on that. I don't think I don't think any of Steve Berline's seasons were included in the data. I was just trying to come up with who are random mediocre quarterbacks. Um, they're not based strictly on teams playing Patrick Mahomes or pe- teams playing Tom Brady with a fully high octane Patriots offense. So I, I do wonder if there's less reliability there if if you're basing it on you know the entirety of football data yeah no but i even looked at this so the historical probability uh in the data that uh espn has over the past five years for a team that uh had a winning record was facing another team that had a winning record and was down by 10 uh with i think between seven and eight minutes left in a game was 9.7 percent so it's not that different from the the i think the, what was it, 93.8 or whatever that we quoted yeah. in the, um, uh, on the blog? And then it, it flipped up to so a little it, bit, but yeah. Yeah, even if you want to be like, well, it's a good team. They were also facing a, 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 facing good, a good team. Right. The that, best defense in the league or right. one of the best, maybe second behind the, um, the Patriots. Okay. Yeah, then that, that has to be part of that too, I think. So what does this do for the legacies of the people involved in this game? What does this do for the legacy of, of Pat Mahomes? How, you know, does this cement him as one of the best players right now, Neil? I don't think Mahomes really needed this in order to cement him because just, you know, he had his breakout moment last year and they came close to making the Super Bowl. And then, you know, if he had lost this game, people still would have been like, you know, he's 24. He's going to have plenty more chances. He is arguably the best quarterback or maybe number two behind Lamar Jackson uh, in the league. And so, you know, I don't. I, I think once if if he kept sort of like you know getting to the precipice of winning, but then didn't for a few more years, then people would have started to kind of whisper, you know, could he get it done? I think uh, this was more important to the legacy of his coach Andy Reid, and it shouldn't have been. I mean, Andy Reid's resume speaks for itself as one of the best coaches ever, but the way that we operate in the way that we view legacies, we do make such a big deal out of winning a championship that he sort of just needed to check this box. And it's so dumb that now we can talk about him as being one of the greatest coaches of all time without having to make any kind of qualification on the basis of the fact that they won a game. They, they they won on Sunday. They could have easily lost. Like we were saying, the model said that at various points in the game, they were very likely to have lost. And and the fact that they made that 95% comeback totally changes the narrative in his career. And that's dumb. It shouldn't. Uh, but you know that that's like the reality of how we view things. But does that cement his Hall of Fame? Yes. I mean, no, I think Probably he was going to be a Hall of Famer no matter what True. anyway. <laughs> I'm saying yes to everything over here. <laughs> well, Jeff agrees with all of it. <laughs> well, I mean, people would have brought up like, oh, he can't win the big one. Big one. But uh, to underscore, uh, some, somebody said this um, in the wake of the game on Sunday, that like simultaneously we're saying that Andy Reid, you know, changed the narrative on himself that he couldn't win the big one. And now we're saying Kyle Shanahan can't win the big one, you know, in the same uh, out of the same game. And it's just like 
what difference would it have made, like, you know, uh, in, in practical terms about how great each coach is? Uh, and why do we have to have this asterisk on someone if they haven't won a championship? Yeah. Well, all right. So let's talk about Shanahan. So now he's been part of two teams to have had big leads in the Super Bowl and lost. What does this do to his legacy? Or is he still so young that it doesn't really matter? I, I don't think it really matters in the sense that I would still think going into the 2020 season, he's probably, you know, one of the one, two, top three best coaches in the NFL. I think his, what he does on offense and his, uh, you know, play design is really phenomenal and that's not going to change. And I think he'll have more opportunities. Um, and also with the Falcons game, I don't, you can't really put that entirely on him. Um, especially considering that the Falcons scored plenty of points in that game, and and that was ultimately a really a collapse on the defensive end. Um, so I don't fault him entirely. I wouldn't think to put these two in the same category. I I do wonder the Falcons are, maybe are a good sort of example for this as to how many more chances once you've sort of been close to that mountaintop a couple times. Yeah, we're all assuming that. The 49ers will sort of have chances again. Kyle Shanahan will have chances again. There's no guarantee. There's no guarantee. Right. And yeah. look, the Falcons have spent the ever since that season sort of inexplicably underwhelming yeah. slash terrible. And I think we've seen these defensive teams be kind of one-year wonders. So, yeah, if we're looking forward, it's no guarantee that they'll be back. So the one thing we have to do to really put a bow on this season is acknowledge um, our predictions before the game and who was right and, and the who draft. was sadly, sadly wrong. <laughs> Neil, you had the Chiefs the, I, the whole way. You had I, them in our draft. You had them I did. in our predictions yeah. two weeks ago. No, and I'm especially proud of the fact that um, – in this season, I beat uh, both of my co-hosts head-to-head. I beat Jeff in the fantasy championship game, which he says he doesn't care about, but I know deep down <laughs> he did. And uh, I beat you, Sarah. Oh, you mean the, the game where I forgot to update my roster? Yes, you Jeff, did not forget know. that at all. I saw you make moves. Uh, and then, yeah, I uh, uh, head-to-head in the Super Bowl draft. So, you know. I I think I'll retire. I'll be like, um, remember uh, when Oprah just kept winning so many, um, so so many Emmys? Yeah, you're really the Oprah of our podcast. I think that's pretty clear. I like to think so. (laughs) Um, I feel like you might be insufferable for all of the off season, so that's great. (laughs) Well, we'll see what happens uh, next year's fantasy and Super Bowl drafts. This MLB offseason has seen several high-profile trades already, a few of which we've covered on the show. But rumors are now flying that one of the best players in the league might soon be moving teams as well. The Boston Red Sox are rumored to be in conversations with the Los Angeles Dodgers and San Diego Padres over their all-star outfielder Mookie Betts. The Red Sox won the World Series just two years ago during Betts' MVP year. He's still in his prime at 27 years old. So why would they want to trade him? Some think this move could be a disaster. A column on Boston.com at the end of last season carried the headline, If Red Sox trade Mookie Betts, it's tantamount to malpractice. Neil, typically we would see a team build its entire franchise around a player of Mookie's caliber. 
Why aren't the Red Sox trying to keep him at all costs? Yeah, I think it's kind of an interesting comparison versus we talked about Patrick Mahomes earlier. The Chiefs are going to do everything in their power to extend him, keep him, uh, and he's going to be the key to their hopes of, of winning multiple championships over the next 15 years. And Mookie Betts is as good at baseball as Patrick Mahomes is at football. So it is a great question. I think one of the motivating factors, well, there's a few for the from the Red Sox perspective. So he's going to be a free agent after this season. They're not sure whether he'll resign with them. He's talked about wanting to hit the free agent market uh, and certainly would command something in the neighborhood of what you know Bryce Harper, Mike Trout, some of these guys have gotten. Uh, so the Red Sox don't want him to walk away and them to get nothing. They are also preoccupied with getting under this competitive balance tax threshold, which sort of, because they spent so much money uh, when they were winning the World Series a couple of years ago, they now have these bloated deals, this bloated payroll that if you're over this certain threshold, especially multiple years in a row, you get dinged pretty hard by Major League Baseball to um, uh, to punish teams that are sort of like spending too much uh, and, and uh, destroying the competitive balance of the game. Uh, and then the third factor is the farm system. So the former GM of the Red Sox, Dave Dombrowski, basically gutted the farm system, which is kind of his thing, to try to go all in to win the championship. It happened, uh, but the farm system was really depleted during that uh, period. And so uh, the Red Sox are hoping that whatever return they get on Mookie Betts in a trade could help them replenish. So that's the case for the Red Sox. One of the cases against is he's the second best player in baseball behind Trout. And Trout, as we've talked about, I'm sure at length, is like a inner circle Hall of Fame type of player. Uh, and Mookie Betts is not that far off from him uh, over the past three seasons. Trout has been hurt for some of this. Betts has 23.2 wins above replacement. Trout has 25.1. So it's actually kind of close. And, and in that MVP season that Betts had in 2018, he had more war that year than Trout has had in any of his seasons as a Major League Baseball player. And that's pretty incredible to point out like not very often can you beat trout in the realm of war which is basically what he's sort of staked out as his own personal uh metric to you know pound everyone over the head with his greatness and mookie betts basically beat him at his own game at least for one season he he was not as good last season so have we seen instances in the past where letting go of a team's marquee player has been like a, a good thing for a team? You know, maybe. So I went back and I looked at examples from history of the best players uh, in, in baseball, basketball, and hockey. I didn't have time for football. Where by the metrics, a team traded away a player that could arguably have been the best in, in their sport, uh, or at the very least, like second best or something, and then tried to see, like, did it help them in the long run. And it was kind of hard to find examples of cases, first of all, where they traded a player as good as Mookie Betts in the first place. Uh, and then second of cases where it actually kind of worked out. Most of the time, these trades were 
Sort of like, you know, Babe Ruth being uh, sold but kind of traded from the Red Sox to the Yankees where it's like the owner needed quick cash and was under pressure in that way and the player was sort of just an asset that they could kind of flip for money. Uh, and, you know, famously in the Babe Ruth thing, the owner of the Red Sox, Harry Frazee, uh, needed money to finance a play. At least that's the uh, the urban myth around it, the musical No No Nanette. And so that's sort of like the archetype that we We've seen in other cases, uh, Grover Cleveland Alexander in 1917 was traded from the Phillies to the Cubs. He was the best player in baseball by war over the preceding three years. He was ahead of Ty Cobb and Philadelphia was sort of like, this is a weird one. It takes you back in time. They were supposedly worried that he'd have to fight in World War One. I. I don't know if Mookie Betts is going to be fighting in <laughs> World War Three. I've seen that oh, hashtag come even, up a lot. Don't even say that. Uh, they were worried that he couldn't play. He actually did end up fighting in the war, but may, later the owner of the Phillies, uh, William Baker, admitted, I needed the money. And that's why they traded away uh, Pete Alexander. And he ended up Playing great afterward, it's the deal is regarded as one of the most lopsided ever. The the Red Sox trading Babe Ruth that was also one of the most lopsided deals ever. As a more recent example, A Rod was traded from the Rangers to the Yankees uh, in early 2004. He was the second best player in baseball over the previous three seasons. Barry Bonds was number one, and it was another case of you know they wanted to get out from under this massive 10 year 252 million dollar contract that A Rod had signed uh, with the Rangers just a few years earlier, and A-Rod was coming off an MVP season. Uh, I think he was one of only two reigning MVPs that were ever traded at the time, uh, and so they sent him... Well, first of all, they they thought they had agreed to a trade sending him to the Red Sox, uh, and then the Players Association vetoed it, and at that same time, Aaron Boone of the Yankees, their starting third baseman, uh, messed up his knee while playing pickup basketball, was out for the year, so the Yankees swooped in, traded for A-Rod, and that one... You know, you could say it kind of worked out for both teams. The Yankees needed a third baseman. A-Rod was one of the best players in baseball, won a few MVPs, uh, and did win the World Series in 2009. Texas went to a couple World Series by the next decade. You know, I found one in hockey, the most famous one ever, is Wayne Gretzky being traded from the Oilers to the Kings. Uh, like Mookie Betts, 27 at the time of the trade, uh, he was the best player in hockey by a wide margin over Mario Lemieux at the time. And it was another case where the owner of the Oilers, Peter Pocklington, basically just needed money to offset losses in his other businesses. Uh, and he made up some story about how Gretzky, you know, wanted to go to L.A. because his wife, his new wife, was uh, an actress and she wanted to help her career. That's a very dubious claim. Basically, he just wanted to provide cover uh, for trading a national hero. And there was a lot of uh, fallout for that. Gretzky cried after the trade. <laughs> that one, you could argue, worked out for both teams because um, the the Kings clearly were better. That put them on the map. And it actually ended up his success in Southern California paved the way for the NHL to add teams in San Jose, Tampa Bay, Anaheim, Miami, Nashville, Atlanta over the next decade. And the Oilers, actually won the cup without Gretzky uh, a couple years later. So it's very hard to find examples of this happening at all. And it's even harder to find examples where you could kind of point at it and say the team that did the trading succeeded or like both teams that, that you know, kind of won as a result of dealing away a player of Mookie Betts's caliber. The A-Rod example, I think, is interesting because the, the Rangers in 2003, the last year they had A-Rod, they finished the season 71 and 91. They were they were they were, they were actually bad. in last place yeah. every single year that A-Rod was there, which is amazing. <laughs> and A-Rod was one of the few MVPs ever to win 
win the award while playing for a last place team. Right. When they traded him in 2004, they finished the season 89 and 73. I think they were still like they were still third in the West. Yeah. So not like a super success, but still, that's a lot more wins after getting rid of the MVP. <laughs> they also did. It wasn't all like prospects and and sort of lottery tickets. They got Alfonso Soriano, who was a, right. a player in the middle of his prime, who was going to immediately contribute. So it wasn't the type of trade that was had an eye towards more of a, a rebuild. Yeah, and, and from what we've heard, I mean, the Red Sox might be trying to kind of straddle both of those lines by getting somebody that can help them, maybe their pitching staff right now, and getting a top prospect. Um, they've talked a lot about either the Dodgers or the Padres giving up um, one of their best prospects along the way. The thing I'm curious about is it, why would they do this now and not wait to the deadline? To me, at least it seems, you know, sometimes with these deadline deals, you get a team that's really a little more desperate and probably willing to give more if they really think this is the final piece. And you can also see, you know, how just basically how good the Boston is this year and whether, you know, they really want to be sellers at this point with their current configuration. Um, but you look at like what the, I always talk about what Cashman did with trading Chapman at the deadline to the Cubs, um, and getting that huge haul for just a, really a, a rental and then getting Chapman back. That's kind of the gold standard to me to how to play this game and how to trade high and, and reap the most amount of awards for your assets. I wonder if they waited, they know that they need to replenish their farm system. So if they wait till the deadline and they're playing well, that might even be worse PR than trading him now. I, I don't think it's great PR right now to trade away the face of your franchise, right? Or does that even matter in, in baseball? I, I'm not. I'm honestly not sure whether that would be a problem for the fans or not. Yeah, I mean, baseball is such a local uh, sport compared with something like the NFL uh, or the NBA. So yeah, like trading away a LeBron James is a huge hit for you know a team uh, if if they were to do that. Uh, whereas maybe like we talked about this before, baseball has done such a bad job of marketing their stars uh, that you know Mookie Betts maybe is not as anywhere near as well-known nationally as he should be. And really, he should be. You know, like you would think winning a World Series in a place like Boston, you know, one of the major media markets, one of the um, most popular franchises, would make you the face of baseball. Uh, but it seems like it hasn't quite worked out to the same degree that you would see with like a LeBron or someone like that. Mm -hmm. Does the, the sign-stealing scandal have any thing to do with this does losing Cora as a coach I mean are they just thinking okay let's just forget it and move on and not and just you know approach this as a rebuilding year I don't really think so well they were shopping Mookie before the fallout from the you know the sign stealing uh, the second Red Sox sign stealing scandal right, right? Uh, or no I, I don't think that this has anything to do with that I think maybe they could try to if they're able to make the trade and get prospects and, you know, sort of spin things forward to the future, they could try to sell it as sort of a clean slate uh, mm -hmm. or whatever. But, like, we don't know. You know, nobody has accused Mookie Betts of any no. know, malfeasance or no, anything No, for like sure. That. I just meant the, the specter of Cora. They did lose some draft picks, though, and I think that puts more strain on a farm system that's already under strain. I mean, they traded – their best prospect in Moncada to the White Sox for sale. And 
You know, they're depleted. And I, frankly, I think if they had their druthers, they would obviously rather be trading price or sale or one of these other massive contracts. But they know, I think, they can get the biggest haul that can really, like, rejuvenate their farm system with a player in his prime like Betts, as uncomfortable as that is. They just better make sure they get the right prospects. I mean, that's how these these trades are judged. I mean, when you when you trade a giant piece like this and you get a bunch of smaller pieces and none of those pieces pan out, then it goes down in these, you know, bleacher report lists of worst trades of all time <laughs> because you have a huge star and five people you've never heard of. Yeah. Um, but if those those prospects become huge stars, then all of a sudden, you know, they were like, oh, that was pretty smart. Yeah. You never want to end up in a bleacher report slideshow of like the 10 worst trades of all time or, yeah. or whatever that that actually i think kind bloom is like that's his number one objective is to stay out of bleacher report slideshows uh but no i think you're right and i think because prospects are so difficult to project you know and there is so much uncertainty around it it's even if you think okay well we're trading mookie and he has this expected value in terms of war over the next you know five years or whatever and we're acquiring these guys that are internal projections system uh, thinks will be worth this much based on their minor league numbers their baseball america ranking all the different you know the scouting reports that that your guys have kind of been um, sending in on them from around the league even if it's like totally equal in terms of expected war out expected war in there's so much more variance around the return that you're getting if you're basing it around prospects i think than than a proven player uh like mookie and for a team like the Red Sox that we've seen this before, they never want to rebuild. They only want to reload on the fly. And even the mere suggestion by Theo Epstein uh, when he was there of, of there being like a bridge year or, you know, some kind of like transitional year uh, toward contention uh, was met with such howls of, you know, angst by uh, the, the Boston season ticket holders, the media, you know, and I think maybe the media is playing a role in this also in terms of... Of, you know, creating such a spectacle around it that, you know, they would be doing their due diligence by floating Mookie Betts uh, as a potential trade, you know, target for other teams just to see what's out there. But I think the second that the Boston media gets, you know, smells the the blood, <laughs> you know, and uh, from from, you know, one of those rumors, they're just going to run with it and blow it up into like crazy proportions. Yeah. Well, as of Tuesday morning, Mookie Betts has not yet been traded. I can only imagine that that means that by the time this podcast is out in the world, he will have been traded. So. Well, he's waiting for the results of the Iowa caucus before <laughs> him and everyone else. So once he does land in his new home, if he is in fact traded, we'll have, I'm sure, more to say about that then. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by 538 copy editor Maya Sweetler. Hi, Maya. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, how's it going? Going great. All right. Well, start us off. So last Wednesday, I was at Madison Square Garden. It was Knicks Grizzlies late January, which normally wouldn't be much of a game, I think. Memphis was up by 18 with less than a minute to go, so the game was essentially over. But the Grizzlies' Jay Crowder didn't get the memo. With 48.1 seconds on the clock, he snagged a loose ball and attempted a corner three. The Knicks' Alfred Payton, who up to that point had had a really nice game, ran up to him and shoved him off the court. Marcus <laughs> Morris jumped in, MSG Security jumped in, and basically the ensuing fracas resulted in 
three ejections, a flagrant two, and a bunch of technicals. Um, it was an exciting introduction to the Knicks, <laughs> to be totally honest. Um, this was your first Knicks game. First Knicks game. But it was somehow less exciting than my introduction to basketball in the previous city I lived in. Uh, last year I was in Los Angeles, and my first and only game at Staples Center was the Warriors-Clippers game with the Inter-Warriors battle in which Draymond Green and Kevin Durant's tensions came to a head on the court. <laughs> I mean, the NBA isn't the NHL, right? Like, fighting isn't overtly condone it's not really even tolerated so what are the odds that if you go to two nba games in two seasons you see fights at both that's pretty amazing yeah (laughs) what a streak you're on (laughs) i know those odds are really small it turns out uh there isn't a reputable up-to-date database that tracks fights in the nba but there were a couple stats that i thought we could maybe use as a proxy plus enough janky youtube compilations to approximate the number of fights per season so first I checked with flagrant fouls. There have been anywhere from between 80 and 120 flagrant fouls assessed per season in the last decade and a half. And I think it's important to, to limit ourselves to looking around that time period as that marks the real rise of intentional fouling and hack-a-shack and other like off-ball fouling strategies. Um, the problem is that flagrants are subject to revision by the league, so historical data might not necessarily reflect game calls, and flagrants generally encompass a much wider range of offenses than like just inciting fights. Um, So then I looked at ejections. The last three seasons have averaged 61.3 ejections. Assuming anywhere between two and four players are ejected per fight, we could be looking at as many as a dozen fights per year. But similar to flagrants, ejections are pretty discretionary and can be assessed for a range of offenses from arguing with the refs to confronting fans to just having too many technicals. And then I looked at fines. Short of actual data, this was probably the best method of approximating fights because the league has to release some justification for every fine. So as we here at 538 are want to do, I took a deep dive into the data. (laughs) Between 2003 and 2013, there were 26 fights that resulted in about 50 fines, which represented about 8% of the number of total fines, although in terms of the amount of money that players had to pony up, it was closer to 14% during that time period. Uh, There have been four fines for fighting this season, two each for the Memphis-New York brawl and the Miami-Indiana fight earlier last month. And that's pretty consistent with the last six seasons. Since 2013, there have been 33 separate fines levied for 18 different fights, which works out to about three fights a season. So we have a baseline for the number of fights. (laughs) But what are the odds of seeing a fight in a given NBA game? So there are 1,230 games in the NBA regular season, assuming the three fights per season are independent events. There's a 0.24 chance that you'll see a fight if you go to one NBA game per year. So if you go to two NBA games in two years, the chances of seeing fights at both of those games are 0.000576%. Yeah, makes me wish I had bought lottery tickets instead of Knicks tickets, but what are you going to do? I feel like that's a common sentiment anyway. Yeah, right. So yeah, so are you expecting a fight now every game you go to? Absolutely. Yeah. It's all you've ever known. It's all I've ever known. I don't know what an NBA game without a without a fight looks like. That's really incredible. I I, I feel like the fa- the players have to know that they're like we're going to do this for Maya. <laughs> She's here. We want to put on a show. Well, and and what's interesting is like you're not like you mentioned the stakes were very low in especially in that they were high in that Warriors game. Everybody was sort of anticipating at least Kevin Durant, you know, tensions with with his teammates all season long. But like a random Knicks Grizzlies game, uh, what was it? A Wednesday night? You said Wednesday yeah, night is like not 
where you would expect uh, the, the necessarily uh, things to boil over. But then I guess, you know, um, there's an old saying that uh, – the fights in academia are so bitter because the stakes are so low. Uh, and so I wonder if that is uh, sort of the same type of thing where like Jay Crowder, you know, he just really wanted to pad his stats in this meaningless moment of this game because like he knows that when people look at his his numbers at the end of the year, they're not going to know that that game when they were up by 20 whatever on on uh, on the worst team in the league. You know, they're they're going to think that that was maybe against a good team in an important moment. Well, I wonder, do fights happen more like if you have a really bad team? So you saw a fight with a really bad team and you saw a fight with a really good team. And the other fight that another fight this season was Indiana and Miami, which is like sort of good teams. So is it more if you're just seeing mediocre teams, is that when you're not going to see a fight? Like there's no reason. But if you're a, a really bad team. And you're not playing well and you're not really trying. Anything will set you off, right? I mean, that felt like it. I wasn't super surprised that the Knicks, like, I'm surprised the Knicks weren't fighting each other. (laughs) This is kind of how I get in, um, like, a video game, like uh, Madden or NHL or something like that, where you can hit. uh, and, And when it just, the CPU is being so cheap and I'm losing and I've given up a goal or something and I have no chance of coming back. I'm like, okay, now I'm going to start fights. And that's, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I can't beat them on the scoreboard, but I'm going to just spite them in every possible way, hitting them after the whistle, starting, you know, brawls, that kind of thing. So maybe that, you know, there is something to that. Does that give you satisfaction, Neil, when you fight the computer? Yes, it gives me deep satisfaction. <laughs> And one can only assume that the Knicks also got deep satisfaction out of their fight. Yeah, Marcus must Morris definitely didn't. <laughs> I haven't seen a basketball fight live, so you got me on that. But I like to think I also have good fight luck. Um, I've been to two baseball brawls live. Okay. Oh, wow. So nice. Base brawls. We don't know what the odds are on that. I've also been to two live goalie fights. Sarah, oh you're not a big hockey fan, but goalie fights are like the white whale of hockey fights. So They're wait, you were at the Calgary-Edmonton very... game last week, Jeff? <laughs> I, I was not at that game, but I was at one of the classic avalanche Red, Red Wing fights where yes. the goalies were wow, was fighting Vernon. I think he thought he was fighting Osgood, but he was actually fighting Vernon. And then I was at one Islanders-Devils where Brodeur actually was not it was a very rare game where he was not playing, and this rookie, Corey Schwab, was in. It was his first NHL game, and the Islanders goalie got in a little scrum, and all of a sudden this rookie starts skating the length of the ice and picks a fight with the Islanders goalie and gets ejected. And then I remember on the Jumbotron, they showed Brodeur, who was rolling his eyes like, oh, God, I have to now come into this game because this guy got ejected <laughs> in his first this game. This was my night off. <laughs> it was my one day off. Well, but at least that's in a sport where, like like you mentioned, fighting is condoned uh, and, and, and expected. Sort of expected. Yeah. Uh, whereas like NBA fights, they're just so unexpected. It's just like a magical treat. Yeah. I and mean, it's not like they're happening in April and May for the most part. I, I have the dates of everything that's happened in the last six years. And it's a lot of January, February fights. Well, I think um, the next time you go to a basketball game, I would really like to come with you. Yeah, I everyone's welcome. Let's do a, do a hot takedown outing. Alice in the Palace. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. That would be the only yeah, way that, to really top it. I yeah. Like, at this point. <laughs> Just like if, if you saw another, another. <laughs> like a fight in the stands. <laughs> 
Suddenly you're fighting players. <laughs> yeah. If you saw another Malice in the Palace, I would just advise you to not go to any more basketball games because then I think you could only blame <laughs> yourself as the cause. Or go to every game. <laughs> Either all or nothing, I think, would be the thing. <laughs> Who do you want suspended and when? I'm yeah. there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we'll, we'll watch for you on SportsCenter to see if you're actually in these fights. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and that will do it for this week's show. One last note, our podcast is losing its producer, which is very sad, but we are in search of a new one. So if you'd be interested in working on the show, love data, sports, and have audio production experience, please send a resume and cover letter to chadwick.matlin, that's C-H-A-D-W-I-C-K dot M-A-T-L-I-N at 538.com, 538 all spelled out. We're hoping to fill this in the next couple of weeks. We will be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and be sure to review and rate the show. It helps other people discover the program. You can also email us at podcasts at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil, Jeff, and Maya, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. <laughs>